Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, how will new gas and oil production affect America's military and geostrategic role abroad? And we are joined today by the author of one of the essays in this issue, Corey Shockey, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Corey, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. All right. So let's start here. America is in the midst of this revolution in the production of energy, new technologies, more resources coming online, downward pressure on prices. Yet at the same time, we're seeing troubles in a lot of other parts of the world that are already big energy producers, Russia, Iran, Venezuela. And and this leads to an interesting observation that you make at Strategica, which is that an energy boom can't necessarily get you out from under the burden of bad political institutions. Explain the dynamic at work there. So, you know, political scientists talk about something called the resource curse, which is that countries that have diamonds or uh, rare minerals or oil tend to be the least democratic and worst governed places in the world. And there's a lot of debate about this. It's actually... It's actually not true. It's just that many of the country, there's correlation but not causality. And, and the right rebuttal is the government of Norway, for example, right? Norway is a country, it's an enormous oil producer, and it's also about the best governed country in the world. So oil production doesn't, it has a tendency to foster um, corruption because in a society that's not well governed, when you have large extractive industries, they tend to be controlled either by the government directly or by large companies in which political decisions will have huge economic effects. So you can see the tendency uh, towards a resource curse, but all it really tells you is are these societies well governed or not? They come under greater pressure if the economy isn't small business and entrepreneurial. So the issue isn't so much the resources as how the government handles the the management of those resources. Is that fair to say? Exactly, exactly right. So the government of Norway, for example, created a, a state investment fund, which is transparent in its practices and in its investments. They are thinking about how to use today's oil money, not just for the well-being of Norwegians today, but for the well-being of Norwegians in the future. The government Hutter has also made similar choices. If you look at the way many of the countries in the Arabian Gulf um, are trying to wean themselves off economies that are strictly oil production, they too are thinking about how do we do this in the future? How do we use a moment of resource wealth to invest in the kind of education and entrepreneurialism that will make future generations productive? And if you look at the unsuccessful resource producers, Russia and Venezuela leap to mind, what they are doing is trying to buy political quiescence by their populations by spending the money, by building their budgets on high prices of oil. And it's frankly delightful to see those governments, which are a burden on their people, 
get the punishment of low oil prices, <laughs> especially since it's been brought about by small-scale American ingenuity and figuring out how to do hydraulic fracturing. Well, speaking of low prices, let me turn to a development that we talked about a little in our conversation with Wick Murray for this series. With all this downward pressure on prices, you would traditionally expect the incumbent producers, whether it's Saudi Arabia via OPEC or, or Russia, to cut production in an attempt to keep prices up. They're not doing that. What's going on there? Yeah, you're right. It is really interesting. Well, they are they're managing they're trying to manage several objectives at once. They want low oil prices because it hurts Iran, it hurts Russia, it hurts several countries that the dominant oil producing countries like Saudi Arabia would like to see penalized. But the conflicting objective is that they also don't want hydraulic fracturing to be taken up elsewhere than in the United States. They don't want China to begin to think this would be a way out of their reliance on petroleum products, for example, to produce their own through hydraulic fracturing rather than having to buy it on world markets. So there are conflicting objectives in in a dream world for current oil producing countries. They would like everyone to remain dependent in perpetuity on oil and for oil to have very high market prices. But fracturing has just upended the table on that. And the United States has such a fluid um, producer's market that lots of small fracturing companies are going out of business. But but the market's quite resilient, and the proof of concept that this can happen, in my judgment, is likely to permanently drive down oil prices. Obviously, the United States doesn't have anything like some of the systemic problems of some of the other countries we've mentioned. But we have been – we've been fighting over the Keystone Pipeline now for several years. We've got sharply divergent approaches to energy, I think it's fair to say, from the two major parties. I'll ask you the question that I asked Walter Russell Mead in our conversation with him. How confident are you that we can still have a dynamic energy economy in this country in light of that opposition? Are those voices loud enough to block progress or is it just sort of an elite perspective that happens to have a pretty loud megaphone? It's definitely an elite perspective with a loud megaphone. I don't think it's an impediment to energy policies though for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that the Keystone Pipeline is actually kind of an interesting example because it has not prevented the importation of Canadian oil. It's just meant that it goes by the much less environmentally safe means of being loaded on train cars. And I think what you are seeing now is a backlash um, by communities that have train tracks nearby them or nearby their water reservoirs and are worried about overturned trains. So it, it's a more fluid dynamic, I think, than the political division would suggest. The other thing that's interesting to me about the political division is that there is one thing on which Americans can unite, that we all want to live in a country where you can drive green battery-powered SUVs that are the size <laughs> of a, a Humvee or a tank, right? Like that's the American dream. We want all sorts of incompatible things to become <laughs> And the beautiful thing is that we're actually probably going to get that outcome, right? <laughs> we are well on our way to 
enormous battery-powered vehicles. So I think there's more trade space than, than the division might suggest. So if we're looking around the world at the, the volatile places where energy is important, I mean it's important everywhere but in terms of production, the Middle East, Russia, Venezuela, etc. Uh, where do you think this is most likely to pinch the hardest? Is there one specific country or region where you think the chances of a big upheaval from these developments is especially likely? I think Venezuela and Russia are the two countries most at risk. And the reason is not the degree of dependence on oil as, as the major part of their economies, although in both cases that is true, but bad governance in both cases. You know, the, the government of Saudi Arabia has legitimacy with its public for reasons of the monarchy and history and maybe religion. You know, there are lots of contributing factors to why the Saudi political regime is in place. And I actually think that's the factor that's lacking both in Russia and in Venezuela and why I think they are at greater risk of the economic downturn of lower, lower oil prices, emphasizing that the government has been trying to buy loyalty with low prices and it doesn't have any other way to produce that. So they haven't fostered the kind of uh, broad-based participatory economy that has made other governments legitimate in the eyes of their people. So final question and one that I've asked all the guests who have a piece in this issue. There is a notion sometimes that if we just do more of this production ourselves, we can sort of unburden ourselves of the Middle East, that we really won't have to worry about it much anymore. We'll just sort of leave them to sort out their own problems. It's no longer much of a concern of ours. Is that argument, though I may have caricatured it, uh, persuasive to you? It is not persuasive to me. I don't think oil is the only reason we should care about the Middle East. I actually think um, 120,000 dead Syrians are the reason we should care about the Middle East. I think actually the United States is a huge force for good in the world because we care about governance, we care about liberty, we care about individual rights and human dignity. And we care about rules of an international order in which states don't make frightened, desperate choices. And that's why we should care about the Middle East, whether or not we are dependent on Middle East oil. All right. My guest has been Corey Shockey, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read her essay and those by other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Corey, thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org. <laughs>